Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the first in the Banneker Bones trilogy. Um, and what can I tell you about this wonderful book I haven't told you already? It's, it's a love story. I don't know if I've emphasized that in the past. It was written as a love story to my wife. Uh, it's a little bit about my love and infatuation with giant robot bees and all things Batman and comic book related. Um, but it's about two lonely 11-year-old boys, Banneker Bones and his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth, who have suddenly been thrown into a situation uh, where they will need to depend on each other to rescue a friend that's been kidnapped by giant robot bees. And we're going to see those two lonely boys uh, come together and form a collaboration, the likes of which would be like a Sherlock Holmes and a Watson, a Batman and a Robin. They're going to have that that friendship, and you're going to see that continue to evolve through the sequel when they fight alligator people, and the sequel after that when they're embroiled in a, a cyborg conspiracy. These are my two favorite characters, Banneker Bones and Ellicott Skullworth, and I could go on writing about them forever. If you're curious and you want to dip your toe in, uh, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans is available as an audiobook, and I know you like listening to things since you're listening to me talk. Uh, it's available as a paperback, but the ebook is free, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now, A Zombie Story. Uh, we're going to talk quite a bit about zombies this episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, George Romero uh, and, and, and uh, his zombie series. Um, once you've read uh, The Living Dead by George Romero and Daniel Krauss, uh, once you've read I, Zombie by previous guest uh, Hugh Howie, by God, check out All Together Now, A Zombie Story by Robert Kent. Uh, and also check out The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel uh, about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is nuts. It is fun. If you're curious about that one, you can get the first book in the five-volume series, uh, The Book of David, Chapter One by Robert Kent as a paperback or the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. Or if you go back a few episodes in the catalog, I read the book of David chapter one as an audiobook that is available for free. You can get that in the back catalog of the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. You can get it on YouTube. And then as always, check out middlegradeninja.com. You can read hundreds of interviews with authors, literary agents, publicists, books you would be interested in, as well as get all of the previous episodes of the show. They're all available right there at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, tonight I'm talking with author Daniel Krauss, and you're going to hear me uh, talking uh, a little faster than normal, and that's because we had a real tight deadline. We had to get in and out of an hour, and Daniel Krauss is an amazing author. Uh, this show continues to feel like I've won a contest. I get to talk to so many amazing people. Uh, and we didn't get to cover near everything that he's done. We talked some about his work on uh, The Shape of Water with Guillermo del Toro. Uh, we talked about the possibility of The Shape of Water 2 
who knows? Uh, we talked, uh, like I said, about The Living Dead, his novel that he wrote uh, collaborating uh, with George A. Romero. And he, he talks about how George Romero was communicating with him from beyond the grave, which how perfect is that? Uh, and we're talking about his wonderful new book, They Threw Us Away, the first in the Teddy Saga. I am over the moon in love with this wonderfully weird, dark uh, tale that's uh, so exciting and so much fun. Uh, it's a little bit uh, in the, the promotion uh, materials. They're, they're calling it uh, Toy Story meets Lord of the Flies, which is a very apt description. Uh, and if you've seen, who hasn't seen the Toy Story movies? If you've seen Toy Story 3, I think that that particular film has the darkest scene in all of Disney history, maybe, because there's a moment, a slight spoiler, I guess, where all the toys are thrown out in a dump and they're headed toward uh, where they're burning the trash and the toys hold hands and they, they say their goodbyes to each other uh, and they um, and they accept their fate. Uh, and then, you know, obviously there's a Toy Story 4, so there's uh, there, there's more to the movie, but I, I think the movie never quite comes back from that dark moment, and they throw us away. Uh, it was sort of like that scene expanded out to an entire novel, but with lovable teddy bears um, that, that get in all kinds of wonderful adventures. Uh, so without any further ado from me, let's start the show. Daniel Krauss, how are you this evening, sir? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am thrilled to chat with you. Uh, it's my charmed life. I get to read a book that I absolutely love, like they threw us away. And then I get to talk with the author. Uh, everything's coming up, Rob. <laughs> Do it all right. Great. Glad to help. So probably the most burning question that I imagine everybody wants to know is, do you have plans to write A Shape of Water 2? Oh, what's funny, actually, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I've never heard that question. Uh, I, well, certainly I have no plans, and that would be a, something that would have to be planned by uh, both Guillermo and I. Um, my guess is no. I mean, my my sense of his interest in that um, project is just just the single, just the single movie and book, and that's it. Um, I mean, I could conceive of something that was I, I don't really I can't really imagine going forward with a with a sequel I could imagine something that was more of a, a prequel or something that sort of went into the creature uh, his life or times or, or some, some other sort of story involving the creature that took place beforehand um, but I, I obviously I have not given it much thought since I've never got this question. <laughs> you find that when you uh, write a, a really finish a story, and obviously that one is a, is a special exception, it's pretty pretty self contained. Um, but a, a prequel would be wonderful. I would love to see just a Strickland spinoff um, <laughs> and just follow mm -hmm. that guy around, see what he's up to. Yeah. Uh, but uh, do you, when you finish a story, does it is it over for you, or do you still think about the characters and plan sequels that you never write? That's, that's another great question. Uh, it it generally is over for me. Um, there are a couple ex exceptions, but the, it's pretty rare. Usually when I conceive of a, a story, I do a lot of planning and thinking about it before I ever start. So if it's something like the Zebulon Finch books or the Teddy saga, they're conceived as a, a series from the get-go. Um, I've never 
Uh, and I won't say I never will, because it's possible, but I've never, after the fact, decided to write a sequel of something. And I think a lot of that might go back to when I was a kid reading Stephen King, and, you know, he never wrote sequels. And there were so many... Uh, I think a lot of my... I mean, I was an advanced reader, but um, one of the things I liked about... You know, my, my friends were all probably reading... Um, Books for kids. When I was reading Stephen King, how uh, old and, are you? And, you started Stephen King. I mean, I'm not exactly sure, but certainly I started reading it. I was certainly reading some Stephen King in maybe fifth grade, um, and I, and while a lot of youth literature uh, seemed to have a lot of sequels and uh, ongoing characters, one thing I, I I came to really like about Stephen King is that he didn't do any of that. It was one story, and then you're gone, and then a totally other story. And my career, intentionally or unintentionally, has followed that model of really just um, moving on. But when I see people who are on book 12 of a series, I just can't conceive of how that uh, is still pleasurable after all that uh, time. I mean, I, I could probably, if I thought about it long enough, I could probably figure it out. But to me, I've got... I always feel like I'm racing against time to to uh, write all the the different stories that I want to write, and I know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get them all out before I'm dead. Uh, so I don't I the idea of spending a lot of time on the same in the same world uh, just kind of makes me panic a little bit because I want to I want to keep moving. Well, what was it then uh, about the Teddy Saga? that said, okay, well, this has got to be a trilogy. I've, I've got enough story, because you, you, you had the whole thing more or less mm -hmm. kind of planned. Do you, do you plot meticulously? How much planning do you do ahead of time? Yeah, the, the Teddy Saga, I knew for, for the age range, the amount of story that I wanted to tell was going to be a lot more than one book. It would, if not, the book would be far too long for the age range. So that, that just made it simple. It was like, okay, well, this is going to, it's going to need to be split up into... Um, Three books, I think, for that age range. Two books is not unheard of, but uh, unusual. The trilogy is more natural, and the, and the story that I was envisioning did ten, did split nicely into three parts, as opposed to my young adult books, the Zebulon Finch duology, where uh, you know that's fifteen hundred pages. That could have easily been at least three books, but it didn't split in a way that was organic for me. Uh, it, it split nicely in the middle. And so, although it's unusual just to have two books, I, you know, I'm not going to force divisions in a story where they don't belong. Uh, so that was two books. It made uh, it makes a lot of narrative sense once you understand the entire story that Teddy's would be three books. And yes, I do a lot of planning. I do a lot of pre-planning. For something like Teddy's that's shorter, um, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you how long my outline is for that. But for something like Zebulon Finch, which again was a 1,500-page book, my outline alone was hundreds of pages. Like I, I go very, very deep with my outlining and my structuring, particularly when it's something historical that requires a lot of research and a lot of, um, a lot of notes that refer me back to various texts that I have to um, uh, glean information from. Uh, I have found that uh, for me, doing a lot of planning up front just helps me in that larger struggle that I have where I want to get the stories out. And I don't feel like I have time 
to make a lot of seriously wrong turns. Like I don't want to, I don't want to write a story and end up going the wrong way with it and losing hundreds of pages. Um, I want to do all that kind of work up front so that I can really concentrate on the the writing part of it. And of course, that nothing's set in stone. Things change all the time as you write. And then I'll just redo the outline as needed. Gotcha. So if you're starting with like say, um, they threw us away. Um, do you sit down? How, how long an outline do you actually compose for that? Are we talking 100 pages, incredibly detailed, 20 pages? Well, I can't really, I don't have it within uh, hands reach here. Um, but it's it's a lot less than 100 and a lot more than two. I, I would say the, the outline for something like They Threw Us Away might be 40-some pages, something like that. Um, but these are, you know, they're they're relatively dense outlines. They're, you know, single space, uh, pretty pretty serious um, documents in and of themselves that I spend, you know, weeks or months on. So when you know from the start that you're going to write three books, um, is that how you pitch it initially to your agent and then and then sell it to make sure that's a done deal before you write it, or do you write it? With the confidence that, hey, I'm New York Times bestselling author, Daniel Krauss, they're going to want <laughs> the other two books. No. no, particularly in a book like this, where uh, our series like this, where volume one will is going to leave you on a cliffhanger, and so is volume two. It was definitely something that I wouldn't want to ever get myself in a position where um, I thought the story wasn't over, and then be in a position where maybe the publisher doesn't want the second book, and then you're, what do you do for all the people who read the first book? So I would never attempt that. I would, uh, in the past, and I'm sure in the future, if I if I want something to be a series, I'm gonna sell it like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna require the full buy-in to the uh, series before I write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that, especially with the Teddy Saga, which is actually one of, out of I think the te- I think they threw us away as my eleventh book, and it's actually one of my favorite plots. Once once you understand all three books, it's one of my favorite. I love how the story comes together um, and all the pieces will eventually come together at the end of book three in ways that I think will surprise people. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, that's something I need to plot out carefully in advance so that all the, the clues are planted. So I desperately want that experience of having the, the whole story. How long am I going to have to wait? Do we have a time frame for when Teddy's two and three are coming? Yes. Yes. Um, they're just going to come out one year apart from each other. So uh, this September is Teddy's one, and then it'll be the next September and the next September. Let's uh, just dive right in. I was uh, I pulled in immediately by the the pitch. I you know I got an email from a publicist and said, "Hey, would you like to talk to some of these authors?" And I just the the cover uh, right away the way it got my attention. And then I, I read the just the pitch that it's the Toy Story meets the Lord of the Flies, and I said, "Yes, oh my God, that sounds wonderful. Send that to me immediately." Um, and then I got it and I thought, well, I hope that this doesn't, uh, wuss out on me and, and it's not as dark as I'm going to hope that, that it's going to be. Nope. No danger of that friends. This is <laughs> a beautifully, wonderfully dark book. Um, it's just, uh, who, who is the ideal reader uh, for the Teddy saga? Well, I hope it's kids. I hope it's, uh, uh, something in the range of older elementary, but the, the way I write, and you can say this about all my young adult stuff, um, um, and I write with this. I now write middle grade, young adult, and adult. Um, I think they all, all of my books, 
are accessible to adults, which is a weird way to say what you normally say the other way around. Um, so I, 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 and that's sort of intentional. I try to cultivate a style that, um, that, uh, would be appreciated by the sort of what the publisher will mark on the book as the intended reader, whether that's young adult or in this case, middle grade. Um, but I'm also, I also want, I want to enjoy it as an adult and want other adults to uh, be able to enjoy my books too. And so it's a weird, t uh, delicate balance. Um, and there's no telling if I'm, if I'm striking that balance, but I certainly try. I don't think there's a reader out there that shouldn't be reading They Threw Us Away. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly yes. pro-Teddy. <laughs> Good, so. Good. Uh, probably the best place to start. I try never to summarize other people's books. I've got a lot of questions for you about They Threw Us Away, uh, burning questions that, that must be answered. Um, but, uh, so that esteemed audience who is about to purchase their copy September 15th uh, will be available everywhere. Um, if you could, I never summarize other people's books because okay. I'll, I'll get it wrong. I'll say it's, it was a book about stuffed tigers and you'll stare at me like, no, that wasn't what it was. Um, so if you would just give us kind of a, give us the audience an overview of the story and then we can dig in and talk sure. about it a bit more. Sure. It's about a group of um, uh, four teddy bears who, who wake up, who come to life um, at, in a trash dump in a landfill more or less. And they don't know why they've come to life, and they certainly don't know why they're in a, uh, a trash dump. Um, the last thing they sort of remember is being on store shelves and being destined for the loving arms of children. And not only are they in the, uh, the dump, they're, they're still in their boxes. Like, they were thrown away brand new. And so they begin what will eventually be a three-book journey to figure out why they were thrown away um, and to find out if there's something they can do to reverse whatever it is that they did wrong. And it's, it's um, hopefully moving, but it is, you know, scary in parts. Um, uh, intentionally so. I mean, it's, it's, it's not hopefully going to give too many people too many nightmares but uh it is um you know for a, a book for this age range, age range it is it does have some harrowing spots i mean they are teddy bears so it's not you know there's a limit to how how uh violent it can be we're talking about teddy bears here um but yeah well, they, they go <laughs> yeah i know but they go on a very difficult journey that's going to change them with the idea being that they're born innocent that these are four teddy bears who are completely brand new, uh, sinless, have never done anything wrong. But in their journey, they're going to kind of emulate the growing up process. And they're going to um, become not just physically dirty, but their, their innocence is going to change. Um, and they're going to have to occasionally do bad things, and they're going to have to um except that they're that they have faults and so it's it's also a, a a fable in that sort of sense about growing up that's uh seems to me um and i'm 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 catching up rapidly now that i've i've, I've fallen head over heels uh, and you're that next author that i'm gonna i have to read everything that you've written 
Um, so uh, somebody send me a copy of the Teddy Saga to come back. I'll have questions about all of the, the books I haven't got to yet. But it seems like just glancing that that's kind of a common theme through some of your work. I know you've got another one about uh, some boys who are torturing an alien uh, where the question is kind of how bad, how, how, um, how, how bad is too bad to accomplish some good. So is that right. pretty common with, with characters that you like to torture in that way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my, uh, and this is not something you set out to do in a career, but one, you know, if you look at my books, one thing that does seem to, to pop up again and again is my interest in um, protagonists who are going to challenge the reader, uh, who aren't going to be fully good, um, at all, you know, there, there's going to be, they're going to do things that as a reader, you're, you're going to question, um, and you're going to, um, you're going to, and maybe in a book like Ben Heavens, which is the book about the alien, uh, you're going to, ideally, if I do my job well, you're going to almost become, uh, complicit in it. Like you're going to, find yourself empathizing and rooting for a character and then when they do bad things you're going to have to try to grapple with that and say uh is this okay is this okay that i'm, I'm still rooting for this person because of, of what they're doing now and that's really interesting to me and and teddy's they threw us away it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere near that far um, the Teddies uh, are always going to be our our um, our our basically good protagonists, but uh, they they will change, and they will they will do things that seemed impossible for them to do when they began with their life in the trash dump, when it seemed like they they could only do good things, they could only smile and hug each other you know like that's going to change yeah that uh, seems to without without spoiling that seems to change almost immediately yeah right off the bat <laughs> yeah well i mean they 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 come to life in a very uh dangerous place you know the the garbage dump is filled with not only dangerous trash but attacking garbage gulls and all sorts of vermin at night uh so they're they, they were built to be in safe bedrooms and uh, safe playrooms, and they they suddenly are thrust into this environment that they have that they are not equipped for, and then they're they're going to have to journey into the city. This is a very urban book. Um, all three of them are. They're going to have to journey into the the gritty city where things are only going to get more dangerous for uh, very vulnerable creatures like teddy bears. So. You know, we'll we'll follow up on that in a moment. I did want to ask just a little bit about the world building because right off uh, the bat, there's some things that, that struck me as um, there, there's there's clearly a backstory here, which we're beginning to get uh, revealed to us as we go on. Um, some of the teddies, Reginald seems to know a little bit more than the other teddies, or at least seems to think he does, although he's hilariously wrong right off the bat, which made me love him all the more. Um, with his uh, with his, his his thoughts on the meaning of TM <laughs> that he wisely right. proclaims to be not trademark, um, but um, the the teddies can read 
and they know some things about the world. They just the similes they make. They they're 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 thinking of wolves. Yeah. So I think when they're it's the bulldozers that are coming through the dump. Okay, so they have some knowledge of the outside world, but they don't have full knowledge of themselves. It's selective what they know about. And so when you're doing that outline at the beginning, are you sitting down and writing down all the the rules and all the backstory to some degree, so you know that going in from from page one? Yeah, I I. I... Did it to some extent, and then in editing, I had to uh, really do it because, to, to some degree, I was writing from the seat of my pants when in regards to the Teddy's rules, and that came to back to bite me uh, once the book was done and the rules were inconsistent. Um, so one of the biggest challenges of editing this book was just to get all of that in order and to make sure the Teddies had a consistent, a consistent. Um, array of what they what they knew what they didn't knew didn't know um uh and all things of that kind Uh, there 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 it required a lot more rules than i would have expected and i think going into it i was a little naive uh, since this was my first middle grade book maybe thinking that i can just kind of wing i can kind of wing this on um, I didn't think that as far as plot structure and character went, but I thought as far as like backstory went, these are teddy bears. How complicated could it be? That well, was more complicated than I thought, like, especially because their backstory is rather complicated. Uh, there is a lot to the backstory that is um, given out in, in chapters that serve as clues that are, are parceled out through the first two books at least. So... Um, I really had to get all my ducks in a row so that I knew when to, when and how to introduce new information th- via these flashbacks. So you're doing all this uh, planning up front because you don't have time to take wrong turns. You need to make sure that you're you're killing it the first time so you can get all three teddies and then do the the next thing. So um, how long does a does an individual book like that, like uh, they threw us away, take? Or do you just write the whole trilogy straight through? No, I didn't write it straight through. It, it, this question is always more difficult than it sounds um, because I'm usually working on multiple projects at once. So I will, I will do a draft of Teddy's and then I'll put it down and work on a draft of something else and then come back to Teddy's and then send it to my editor and while I'm working on yet something else. So it's, it's hard to ever know exactly how many months it took to write a book. I don't really know. Um, I think for Teddy's, the first draft, though, was probably somewhere in the, the four months range, somewhere, something like that. But keep in mind that that, that when I, that doesn't count the, the pre-planning, you know, like I might have been uh, planning this book for uh, a year ahead of time, just sort of taking notes on it. And most of my books, and Teddy's is not um, any different I'm sitting on the seeds of ideas for years sometimes decades um, before the pieces come together in my head so there's it might it might take me four months to write the first draft but there's there could be years before that where I am sort of doing intellectual work on it so do you keep like an idea folder or how do you organize your thoughts yeah. while they're in progress yeah I have a bunch of these so I have just a bunch of these little notebooks, um, and I just kind of always have these on me, and 
I just take notes constantly on a bunch of all sorts of projects, including ones that won't get made and including ones that I probably won't figure out for another 10 years. But um, they're, the notes are there for when I need them. So fantastic. So uh, eventually there'll be, you know, the Daniel Krauss Library where all those uh, notebooks will be compiled. And <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, my my archives were uh, have already been acquired by the University of Pittsburgh. So um, I'm already sending them stuff from my older books, drafts and stuff. So eventually, I mean, I'll be dead because I until then I can't get rid of these because they have notes that I use. But someday you can <laughs> look inside these books. I'll be gone. It'll be very sad. Oh, I'd rather keep you around writing more books. <laughs> I'd be fascinated to see the notes, but more books. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, okay. Um, what does your average writing day look like then? Yeah. So I write like I work in a factory. Like I, uh, I wake up, um, jump into the shower and immediately go to work. Um, I sit down right here where I'm sitting right now. And I try to put in an eight-hour day, um, and I work six days a week. For many, many years, I worked seven days a week. Um, and uh, a couple years ago, I, I decided to, to try to take off Sundays. And that's and I've gotten better at that. But it, but that was has even been a struggle because I'm so used to working, um, and I love to write. So. Um, it's very easy for me to want to do it seven days a week. But anyway, so I do it. I generally put in a good eight hours, uh, six days a week. Um, and I don't, I don't suffer uh, writer's block or anything like that. And I think part of the reason for that is that I am working continually on multiple projects. So um, I'm able to jump back and forth and every project serves as a palate cleanser to the other project. So if, if uh, I stop a draft on one and I work on another, then when I go back to that first one, uh, it's it's as if I've, I've really gotten space from it because my mind really wasn't thinking about it. So some people have to put a draft in a, in a drawer for six months to achieve distance from it. I feel like I can achieve distance much more quickly because I'm working on multiple things. And you don't run into issues where you, I mean, obviously with the teddies, you're not going to confuse that with the boys and the alien. Um, but yeah. Do you find that uh, one tone might bleed over from another? That hasn't been an issue, really. And that's partly because, uh, as I said, I write so many different kinds of books for different audiences. You know, in the last 12 months alone, I had a, I wrote a crime novel for adults uh, science fiction, young adult novel, um, uh, an adult horror novel, um, science fiction with young adult, I think I said, yeah, the uh, uh, adult horror novel, an adult comic book, and a middle grade illustrated um, novel. So those are, normally you wouldn't even be allowed to have five projects in a, in a 12 month period because they would compete against each other. But, but none of these competed against each other because they were all wildly different and uh, i mean i i promise you i will not have five projects out every year <laughs> that was a very unusual year but it it is evidence of writing a wide array of genres for a wide array of audiences and i think that keeps my 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 mind agile 
and it doesn't really allow for much uh, seepage between projects. Well, I want to look at this eight-hour workday. Does that is that drafting straight through? Is that drafting plus revising? Is that emails and all the business side of things? It used to be pure writing, and I, I miss those days. Uh, now it's definitely um, a lot of business stuff, a lot of emails and phone calls. Uh, when when things are normal-ish, I, I can write until maybe 2 p.m., and then, uh, and then it's all emails and phone calls. That's when I have the luxury of being able to stack those into the afternoon. Sometimes, obviously... You, you can't control all that stuff and it's going to interrupt the day. But when I, when I have my way, I will stack things at the end of the day. And if I really have my way, I'll stack them at the end of the day near the end of the week. Gotcha. So those early hours you want to be drafting, what time do you start? Yes. Uh, it depends uh, on various things, but I'm, I'm usually writing by, I don't know, seven thirty, sometimes much earlier. Um, not usually much later. Uh, yeah, so the, the start dates, the start time is always pretty reliable. The end time's a little more fluid. Do you do um, uh, writing rituals to get started? Or is it just grab a cup of coffee, sit down and go? How do you fire up? <clears throat> yeah, no rituals. Just, just sit down and go. Um, anything, it's almost the opposite. It, if anything, I'm I'm probably eas more easily thrown off than I'd like to be by things that would interrupt me getting to work early. Um, the worst thing for my writing is if I have some other obligation the first thing in the morning because um, I need to sit down and get to work because I'm probably thinking about it as this, the second I get up, I'm thinking about what I'm writing that day. Um, so if I have something wipe out my the first few hours of the morning, for example, it's it's difficult for me to to really salvage the day at that point. And how do you know if you have had a successful day? Do you count word count? Do you have goals on the story you want to get to? For for many many years, most of my career, I did not do anything like that. I didn't count words. Um, I've started to do that. I started a, a few books back when I had a book that was on a very tight deadline um and i knew i just mathed it out i just thought well there's no way i'm going to get this done unless i write you know i don't remember what it was but it was something it was a lot it was maybe 3500 words a day or something like that which is which is a lot for me anyway um so i started keeping track of that and it you know it did it did help um and i think it does help uh, gen I mean, it helps because generally I, I, I make my word count goals. If, it, if I was constantly failing those goals, it would probably be a very depressing practice that I should probably stop. But as it stands, I almost always make the goals, so uh, it probably gives me a little bit of a boost to know that I'm staying on track. Uh, so it's a sort of self, I'm setting myself up for success in a way. And then are you, when you write all day, do you feel free to go and read fiction at night? Or is it, no, I'm done looking at words for a minute, I got to do something else? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely read at night. Um, yeah, there's no, no problem there. I, 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 want to, uh, I want to always be reading 
reading things and watching uh, movies. I don't I don't watch a ton of TV um, or or shows, but I and again again it comes down to like the old idea of series stuff. Like I I don't want to get sucked into um, a story that goes on too long. I want to I want things that move like as quickly as I want my brain to move. So I, I generally I tend to watch a lot of movies and read a lot of books, um, and uh, a wide variety. Like my book choices are all over the map, every genre you can imagine. Uh, so, so yeah, so reading and watching things and listening to things, all of them hopefully pretty challenging to me. I don't have a ton of I don't do a ton of comfort reading or comfort watching. I want I want stuff that that. Um, pushes me and makes me have to think. That's all very, very important to the writing. So do you go back and like comfort read the Stephen King books you loved for back in the day, or is it nope? Let's move no. on. Let's read something new. No, I almost never reread, and I rarely rewatch. Uh, it's it's uh, I'm I'm pointed forward. I really I really want to keep progressing and keep moving and keep experiencing new things. Um, I want I want my work to. Con- I, I want to do what I can. I am relatively prolific, and I think the, the only way to sustain that and not to keep writing books that that's, feel the same is to keep challenging myself um, and having a, a daily input of challenging material so that I can continue to output an increasingly varied array of uh, projects. I'm uh, budgeting my time. I'd kick my own butt if we did this whole uh, chat and didn't talk zombies. So I want to make sure we leave yeah. enough time for that. But I've definitely got to ask just a couple of more questions uh, about uh, about the Teddy Saga. Sure. Um, I wanted to ask about, because this is a wonderfully dark book, and yet it always feels fun. It's never like, oh, what a heavy, uh, mm-hmm. depressing thing. It's just... There's some things that I wouldn't expect in a, in a, in a teddy bear story. So I'm going to read a quick passage from your okay. own book uh, to you uh, by way of example. I love this. The mother was stabbing an iron poker into the fireplace. Beside her were a seam ripper and a pair of sewing shears. She was going to disembowel the originals and burn their parts in the fire until their plush turned to ash, their plastic noses melted, and their marble eyes popped like chestnuts. Mwah, chef's kiss. Yes. Beautiful description. <laughs> uh, you've yeah. got uh, teddies with their head streaming stuffing. Uh, yeah. At one point, uh, no spoilers, but there's some teddies that appear to have been burned alive. <laughs> yeah. It's fun, fun stuff. So how did you decide where the boundary was for when the story was getting too dark, or was there one? Well, I mean, it, there is a certain freedom of... To, to writing about teddy bears uh, because they are things of cloth and stuffing. And to a certain extent, you can damage them without um, without uh, killing them, you know? Like, if, you, if I was dealing with human characters, I, I would I'd pull way back on the kind of uh, um, abuse they were taking. But kids, I think, understand toys. Like, their own toys get broken and scuffed up and stained, um, and I wanted to place these teddy bears in a very realistic setting. Uh, there's nothing fairy tale about anything um, in their surroundings. They're in a, in a dump. They move into a city that is dirty, and they 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 travel down streets in gutters that are filled with 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 litter. Um, 
and the 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 stores they pass once they get in, they get into a city are realistic. You know, they 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 pass a check cashing place and um, you know pl- places that that you don't generally see in books like this, but feel like they're part of uh, a city kid's every single day reality. Uh, so it felt it would it would have felt cowardly of me to to dodge that kind of thing. I mean, this is just, uh, there's no point to dodge things that are, that kids see every single day and they don't disturb them. You know, these things are real. So, so for me, I, and I, you know, not every book is going to be for every kid. That's, that's for certain. But for me as a, as a young reader, a book like this would have really excited me precisely because it did things that I wasn't expecting and went places I didn't think it was going to go. Uh, and I think part of that is just the ambition of, of wanting to to try to write something that, that kids are going to be affected by and remember. Um, and, you know, maybe if, if we're really fortunate, remember for the rest of their life. You know, and I remember reading this book and it, and it scared me a little. But because of that, uh, I never forgot it. And it, it, it taught me things and it taught me where some of my boundaries were in, in or weren't, even more importantly, for me as a young reader, um, in reading and consuming art and, um, and just navigating the world. Uh, I am, I, I, guess, I guess in the, the kid lit space, I am uh, a, you know, a little bit of a button pusher in the sense I, I want to, to push things a little bit because that's what inspired me as a young reader. Makes a lot of sense. I would have absolutely adored this book in third, fourth grade, uh, but I was a weirdo. And now yeah. I know a lot of other weirdos that will absolutely in, uh, gravitate toward this book and have just the best time. Well, one more uh, question about the teddies, and then we, we, we got to talk Romero and zombies. Um, but these teddies are awfully fatalistic uh, throughout uh, I, I, I thought of them almost as Mr. Meeseeks for the Rick and Morty fans because they're, 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 their goal initially, at least, is to accomplish their teddy duty uh, so they can fall into the forever sleep. Um, and they, um, you know, at one point, uh, Buddy is uh, facing his first little bit of adversity. I think chapter two or chapter three, and he's immediately like, oh, I wish I was in the forever sleep so I wouldn't have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then Reginald routinely is assuring everybody they're not going to make it throughout. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but the characters are compelling. I I rooted for them. Um, so how do how do you create these fatalistic characters without tipping the story toward why should I care what happens to the teddies if they don't? Well, I mean, it's not that they don't care. It's that at the beginning of the story, they're completely unequipped for the world. And what they one of the few things that they know the teddies are born with this knowledge is that they're supposed to be on a store shelf. And the kids, they're going to be chosen by a child. The child's going to hug them. And they're going to drift away into this thing they call forever sleep, which just means they just become a normal, happy, blissfully unaware toy. Uh, and they think that's what they want. And the book is sort of about them being forced to, to uh, change their... Their fate has been changed, so they have to react to that in a new kind of way. They have to become a different kind of teddy. Uh, they're, they're, no one, they, they come to realize no one's coming to the dump to pick them up and hug them. 
they're going to have to leave the dump and find children. Uh, so they're, it's not that they're fatalistic, but at the beginning, they just don't know what to do. They're supposed to be picked up. Someone's supposed to come help them. You know, it's, imagine you're a kid and you're, you're left behind somewhere. Like your first instinct, it might just be to stand in a, in a spot and wait for your parents to come back. But after a while, you do start to sense, okay, they're not coming. I need to, I need to somehow start to work to get myself out of this situation, find another adult, something. Uh, in this case, they've got to get out of the dump. Um, and then from then they pick up new clues about where they should be going, what they should be doing. Um, and as far as Reginald goes, I just find him humorous. Uh, <laughs> I, I just like, you know, the other, the other characters do as they begin to accomplish things and actually begin to persevere over adversity, they start to be a little more bold and even proud at their accomplishments. Uh, uh, Reginald is just a, a funny, um, cynical character who just, whose catchphrase is we're not going to make it. <laughs> we're never going to make it. Um, but I think particularly as the story wears on, um, readers may start to sense that he doesn't really believe that, that, um, he's impressed by what they're accomplishing too. Um, and all of the teddies as a unit are impressing themselves and building a confidence in themselves and just as important in their community as a group you know they become proud of what a teddy can do you know they're doing things that no teddies have ever done and they begin to realize that and they and they begin to feel excited by their own accomplishments and to me those are the moments in the book that really uh that i really love is seeing them start to grow and from helpless things into creatures of of agency and um and motivation and confidence hopefully by uh, book three they're going to be uh, battle-tested warriors there <laughs> yeah they're, they're getting there so we have to talk about uh the living dead which uh, came out here august 4th mm -hmm. um Please give us just a. This is a dream gig. You 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 yeah. get the. You're, you're writing the final story in George Romero's long epic tale of zombies, and you, I, I had read or heard, I don't remember which, that you had the, the Night of the Living Dead was your favorite movie at age six. Is that right? Well, I don't know if I would have said that at age six, but it certainly is the first movie that I I actually remember seeing. You know, I'm sure I saw some Disney movies before that, but. I don't remember them, but I remember being five or six and watching Night Living Dead, um, and I saw it co continually growing up. It was famously, if you're a George Romero fan, you know that uh, it wasn't copywritten correctly, so it was public domain. So anyone could show it at any time in any theater on any channel, and therefore it was constantly on. And I saw it a million times. My mom was a fan of it, so I got introduced to it very young. Um, and although, of course, I like Star Wars growing up, I do t like to say that George Romero movies were my Star Wars. Like, I grew up on them, um, and they were that important to me. They, they, they shaped my worldview. They shaped um, the kind of artist I would become, certainly, but, but more, more uh, immediately the kind of person that I was becoming and would become. So, to, yeah, to, to 
many decades later to to be able to be a part of the concluding chapter of his uh, six zombie movies, you know, and Romero with Night of the Living Dead more or less invented the modern concept of the zombie. To be a part of ending that is, you know, beyond a dream come true. How do you get yourself in a position to, to, to be that guy? Well, you, you know, every other opportunity in life, you kind of, you work hard and then it's the right person at the right time. You know, it's, uh, it was a situation where I had done a couple high profile collaborations. So I, I, I had proven myself as somebody who could work as a collaborator with another author and, and also was known to the Romero estate as somebody who was a huge George Romero fanatic um, and not just of his zombie movies, uh, but all of his movies, and was just a real student of his and a devotee of um, his work. Uh, and you just put that all together, and I was um, at, at least one of the the people who seemed logical to approach. That to me, I would think that uh, reality must be a simulation. I mean, how could that? How could any course of events get you there? That's amazing. It is, and it's it's the one thing out of all my projects that I I still can't. After three years of working on it, um, I still can't fully wrap my brain around it. Like I I still I'm looking at the the books right now on my shelf, um, and I and I don't get it. I don't get it how I've how I worked with. You know how how there's a book with George and my name both on it. It's I still don't fully understand how it happened. And one thing I wonder: you must have uh, incredible courage, as, as proven by your fearless uh, Teddy saga. Uh, but here, especially because if you're working, you're you're working from uh, what a manuscript that Romero had written but not quite finished. Yeah. So if you nail it and everybody says yes, that is the perfect ending, then Romero gets all the credit because he's oh yeah <laughs> obviously. And then right. if, if fans are upset, it must have been this Daniel Krauss guy. Yep. What you- oh yeah. That's that's I mean, before I started working on it, I that's exactly what I said. I said if I pull this off, George gets the credit and I'm fine with that. If I fail, I get all the blame. <laughs> um but I, I was okay with that. Uh I am but a humble shepherd in this case who's really trying to to bring Romero's uh um novel and you know, he just had he didn't write other novels. This was you know, this was it. Uh, t- to bring that novel over the the finish line um, and do do something for him because he had done so much for me. So the way I always looked at it was um, not as you know what what can I get out of this. It 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 was always how can I how can I give back to George? How can I execute this in a way that is the most uh, loyal and respectful to all that he did while still taking risks because he also took risks um, and he was someone whose films were could be divisive and so I also had to be aware of that it's like don't be afraid you know while you're being respectful don't let that stop you from taking risks and and being divisive um, and you know, carrying on in the spirit of George Romero. 
So when you're when you're doing that, um, do obviously your name's on the cover. The book's not done. When you get your hands on it, you're going to have to add at least some portion of yourself into the story. Did you feel some freedom to take to take some small departures and find your this is my little Daniel Krauss corner, my cozy spot that I'm going to I'm yeah. gonna put my stuff in? Well, yeah, I had to. Uh, w- one thing that made that slightly less of a concern is that George hadn't. It's not like George wrote half the book and stopped. It was much more complicated than that. He had he wrote stuff that belonged in the first portion of the book, the middle of the book, and he wrote stuff that belonged at the end of the book. So there's George all throughout this book. Uh, so there, it's not like I could, you know, he wrote the first half and then I was just going to go on a crazy Krauss rampage to do whatever the hell I wanted for the rest. Um, Teddy Zombie crossover, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I did have these sort of points that I had to hit. You know, I had to get from this portion of George's manuscript to that portion and then the next portion. And some of those gaps were small and some of those gaps were massive. Um, and I had to use, uh, and, I, and it, I did use everything that I knew about George from research and interviewing his wife and listening to his commentary tracks and reading numerous articles and i did all my research to try to be as true to his his themes and his interests and his loves and hates but yeah you're right ultimately there was going to have to be um a fair element um, of myself in there too thankfully i i truly grew up on his work so his george amir was already part of my dna so it's not like we were disparate planets trying to combine we, we were we've always been you know, I was almost born of George Romero, so we were already fairly close in a lot of our viewpoints. Oh, so he's been uh, unknowingly collaborating with you? <laughs> yeah. A little bit well, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, all my books in some ways are probably uh, minor collaborations with George Romero because he was so uh, inspiring to me. How, um, we're running out of time, uh, but I gotta ask this question. How does that collaboration where he's not there to say no daniel don't do that how does that differ with say working with guillermo del toro on troll hunters or shape of water yeah it's 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 different and my challenge was to try to make it not as different uh you want the whole point of collaborating is that you have two voices that have to combine and um push up against each other uh, you, you, chances are a, a successful collaboration is going to have two people who agree on a lot of main tenets, but a successful collaboration is also going to have a little bit of tension. Um, the idea being, or at least my philosophy being, that um, another person is going to throw you roadblocks, and that's what you want. You want someone to say, no, I don't want to do that, I want to do this, and then you're right, okay, we're going to do that, but then we're also going to do this thing of mine. And you're going to be forced to be more creative because you have to figure out a way to make it all work together. It's, it's, it's akin to low-budget filmmaking where you, the fact that you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a lot of locations, et cetera, et cetera, it forces you to be more creative, which is why you know, I always tend to like filmmakers, early films better, where they're they have so few resources and they're they're really scrapping to do something creative that's what collaboration should should feel like so i didn't have that with george 
um, so I had to make I had to give myself those obstacles. Now, granted, because of the patio way in which his manuscript existed, I sort of had some of that because I did have to get from point A to point B to point C that he had already put in place. So I couldn't just totally go freewheeling off into the, the, the horizon. But part of what my months of research were, were, were uh, focused on understanding George to a, to an extent that I would have to uh, know what he would do in a certain situation and deal with that. Uh, and, and remember when it, you know when there's a, a fork in the road uh, that sometimes usually we're probably going to cha- both choose the same route because George and I were not that dissimilar, but occasionally George is, is going to want to go one way and I'm going to want to go the other way. And I had to I had to be very very sensitive and and aggressive with with trying to predict what he would want so that I could have the Phantom George to sort of butt up against. This was, uh, as sort of a final comment on this, this was helped by the fact that his manuscript uh, and notes came in different chunks. Uh, When I started the novel, I had a certain manuscript of his uh, that I was working with. And then I worked with it for quite a while, and then we discovered another 100 pages of writing. Uh, So these were ways, and then then I worked on it again, and then we eventually his manager found this long letter that detailed where he was going with some of the plot threads. And the fact that these came later in the game uh, acted as if George was out there, risen from the grave, sending me new stuff. So it it made me have to battle... Uh, these new arrival, this new information, just as if uh, a live collaborator was out there sending me new stuff. So uh, it would have been a lot easier had I had all this stuff up up front from the beginning. But the fact that I didn't actually made it feel like I was working with a person who had their own ideas and directions for things. And I had to find ways routes into those ideas that made sense for me and that I could get excited about. Um, so it ended up being closer to a, a normal collaboration than you might expect. George Romero collaborating from beyond the grave. How I know. perfect is that? <laughs> if anyone could do it, it'd be him, right? I see that we have the time on this thing always flies by so fast. Yeah. Uh, and I know we're, we're right at the end of it. I've got two questions for you. I'm going to call it a night. That sound fair? Uh, esteemed audience knows I have to ask because I ask everybody. Daniel Krauss, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost, and do you believe in them? I have not, and I have not. Um, I, 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 I believe in I believe in aliens. Yeah, the the galaxy is infinite. They they certainly exist. Whether or not they visited the Earth, I have no idea. So that's a soft yes. I guess I sort of believe in them. Yes, ghosts. I do not believe in ghosts. Just hard no. It's just hard no. I don't know. I don't I don't buy it. Ah, then my final question is always some variation of if you could go back toward the start of your career or whenever it would have been most uh, useful to you and give yourself one or two or however many bits of advice that you like that would have made a significant difference for you and might make a significant difference for all the uh, writers that are listening to this. What would you go back and tell yourself? This one's always tough. Uh, if the question is just what advice would you give someone, um, that's one thing. It's it's more difficult to give yourself 
yourself advice back in the past because it's going to change the entire uh, it's going to have that, the chaos uh, right the butterfly effect of like changing your entire life so it's it's very dangerous to go back in time and give yourself advice and you're limited so to know. writing advice no don't date her buy google stock nope just <laughs> yeah um because we're running out of time, I'm going to slightly dodge that because I just don't think I would give myself any different advice. But I I can use something that was helpful to me back then and pass that on. Um, and that's uh, advice that I think is somewhat interesting because it runs counter to a lot of uh, advice that I hear people give young writers. Um, I think today there's a lot... There, I don't think, I know that there's a lot of places that you can workshop your writing in ways that didn't exist when I was a kid. You know, there was, if I was writing stories as, as a kid as I was, you know, there was no one to read them. But now you, there's communities online where you can post them and you can get comments on them. Um, and I think generally those are all positive things. But I will say that uh, not being, not having an audience for my writing throughout my entire uh, childhood started writing maybe in first grade and went on and never stopped um, but I, I really came to love writing for the act of writing uh, there was there was never any element about reception I was not writing to impress anyone I wasn't writing to get uh, compliments from anyone um, I I wrote sometimes I wrote constantly and eventually by middle school, I was writing novella-length things. By high school, I was writing full novels, and all of them went directly into the drawer. And I felt great about that. You know, I wasn't hungering for feedback, um, and I think that that really has helped me in my career because I'm not. What's exciting to me is writing the book. A release of a book is far, far less exciting. Um, I don't get I don't get overly um, excited about the release of a book. Um, it's almost an inconvenience because like, oh, I got to go back and deal with that book now. Um, but I love writing. Um, and I think all that time spent in isolation helped me create a unique viewpoint and uh, a craft. And so I think, th although I, I don't want to tell young writers to not share what they're writing, because I think there's a lot of value in that. I think there's also, for some writers, there may be a value in not and keeping some of it a little closer, because I think once you start opening everything up to people's um, critique or likes or favorites or whatever, you start, you, you know, you're only human. You're going to start reacting to that and say, oh, if I do this, more people like it. Or if I write this kind of story, less people like it. Um, and that's a way that art becomes sort of rounded and um, in the center of the Venn diagram. Uh, I think art at its most potent is when it's at the edges and isn't, hasn't been voted on and isn't safe and is going to appeal to a thinner razor of people. That's the art that changes the world and that's the art that I think changes people. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd advocate for that, not for everyone, but for some people. That is beautiful advice and a perfect note to end on. Uh, Danny Krauss, thank you so much for, for being here and for the thrill of, uh, of uh, getting to have this conversation with you. Where can esteemed audience find you online, learn more about you? 
Simply, I would just go to danielkraus.com, K-R-A-U-S. Um, that'll have all the links to all the other things that I do. Everything you need to know right there. Steve audience, pick up a copy of They Throw Us Away. You're going to be glad that you did. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. As always, check out middlegradeninja.com for updates on everything going on with me at the show. Everything you'd want to know that's good in the world. Uh, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.